Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, the preceding podcast episode had a man on it by the name of Carl Erstein, who uh, he pitched 10 seasons for the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1948 to 1957. And, and Carl's done about uh, seven episodes with us, and he's from the state of Indiana. He lives out there in a, a town called Anderson. Well, one day in September, I was listening on WOR 710 AM to the New York Metropolitan Baseball game in Atlanta against the Braves. And uh, Mr. Howard Kelman had, for the weekend, replaced Howie Rose's partner, Josh Lewin, who was doing football uh, duty that day. So Howard Kelman is the voice of the AAA Indianapolis Indians and has been since 1974, a time that also included Carl Erskine as his radio partner. And guess what? Howard grew up on East 23rd Street between Avenue U and Avenue V in Brooklyn, New York. So, without further ado, I welcome the voice of the tribe, Mr. Howard Kelman. Howard, thank you for joining the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. Well, Sam, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I had a wonderful time filling in on the Mets broadcast and uh, get back to Brooklyn often. Was back in Sheepshead Bay where my sister and her family live a couple of weeks ago. Well, to, to uh, you know get the compliments out of the way. I was very, very floored by uh, your professionalism. And just, you know, usually you don't get that level of professionalism. Uh, nothing against the people who are, you know, some of the players that are starting out who uh, called some games in absence of Josh. Um, and, uh, and I immediately asked Madge, who uh, runs the Twitter, uh, Chris Medjkowski, and also is the producer of the show. I immediately asked him uh, who you were, and it's really cool that uh, we were able to connect like this. So well, I'm looking further... forward to speaking with you. Exactly, me too. And so without further ado, um, tell us about your, your Brooklyn roots, starting with your parents. So what are their backgrounds and how did they get to Brooklyn? Well, my dad went to New Utrecht High School, and my mom, the other end of the borough, Jefferson High, Thomas Jefferson High School. And they married in 1950. And then when, we were, when I was four and a half, we moved from... Avenue U and East 8th Street, which I think would be the, considered the Gravesend section of Brooklyn, to, as you mentioned, East 23rd Street between U and V. So we lived there until, and my parents lived there until 1990, until they moved to Florida. And I lived there until, as you said, I came to the Midwest. Uh, graduated from PS206, Sheepshead Bay High School, and Brooklyn College. PS206 is at the corner of East 23rd Street and Avenue V. And among its alumni, Vince Lombardi and Rico Petroselli. They're the two most notable men with athletic achievements. I didn't know that Vince Lombardi uh, was a Brooklyn guy. Oh, yes. He's from Sheepshead Bay. And, yes, and there is a Lombardi Square in the Sheepshead Bay section, uh, an avenue named after him. And uh, I was a big fan of his growing up. I wasn't a Green Bay Packer fan. I was a Giant fan but I still admired him to no end and all he achieved. And it's interesting to go off on a, on a tangent uh, briefly with football, but uh, I, I discovered um, probably like a year ago, a little longer than a year probably, but that Vince Lombardi was a coach for the Giants. Now, he wasn't a coach, he wasn't a head coach for them, but he did uh, go to the championship game or won some championships before the Super Bowl era. Well, he was an assistant coach for the Giants. He was the, in charge of the offense, and Tom Landry, was in charge of the defense. Two pretty good coordinators right there. Yeah, and uh, they both, uh, as everybody knows, had all that success in the NFL. Lombardi's teams won five NFL championships in seven years, including the first two Super Bowls. And now they call the trophy after them. But but uh, not to go too far off, although Brooklyn apparently is getting some football back, and we can talk about that in another time. But uh, with your parents, um, uh, on East 23rd Street Avenue, U and Avenue V, um, it, it, it was kind of on the border. You, you know, you were just a block away from going to a different school, am I right? Going to a different high school, yes, Madison. And uh, if I had been a block between Avenue U and Avenue T, I would have gone to Madison. Sheepshead Bay was a newer school, and the first graduating class was 1961. And I graduated from Sheepshead Bay in 1970. Uh, Rico Petroselli, the terrific shortstop third baseman with the Red Sox all those years, 
was in that first graduating class at Chiefshead Bay High School. And Madison High School, where Marty Glickman, among others, uh, attended high school. So uh, as you pointed out, Sam, a block away, a block north, and I would have gone to Madison, went to Sheepshead Bay, right from there to Brooklyn College. Yeah, no, and it's really uh, great how Brooklyn you are. I mean, it was, you know, the only have two places that you've ever lived, like you uh, you told me off there, which is Brooklyn and Indiana. And growing up in, in Brooklyn, and let's start with those early years, what are some of the things you remember before we get to the Dodgers, just about uh, about you being a kid on the streets of Brooklyn? Well, PS206 was across the street, and that's where I went. And when I started to play ball, that's where we always – uh, played ball at for years and years and years. Uh, I remember during the 1958 World Series, the Yankees were playing the Braves, but I wasn't really interested in it, and I was six. And a couple of weeks later, my dad came home from work, and he brought gave me a basketball, and he started telling me about the Knicks. And immediately I took to it and followed the Knicks and became a big fan. And then when spring came, well, then it was baseball, and those are my first mm-hmm. – memories of following baseball. And I remember the first baseball game I followed opening day, 1959, Norb Seaburn hit a home run to win the game for the Yankees. Uh, I did not go to Ebbets Field. The Dodgers left after the 1957 season. I was five. I do remember one time that year, my cousin who was three years older went with my dad and my uncle and they said I was too young to go. And I was disappointed, although I had no idea what they were, what they were doing there. And I also remember my grandmother, my maternal grandparents, lived on Eastern Parkway, uh, not too far from Ebbets Field. And I remember my father, one day in 1957 on a Sunday, dropping my mother and me off at my grandparents, and he went to the game. And I I didn't really understand what was going on, because I remember putting the game on. I thought he was playing. I didn't really grasp it at all. But a year later, two years later, I got really into it and never stopped. Uh, once they showed me the baseball, and prior to that, the basketball. Right, exactly. Um, it, what What is your first memory of of hearing radio? Well, it was two things. It was listening to the Yankee games. This is before the Mets came into existence, and the other thing was this: is that uh, less. My dad was a Giant fan for some reason, but. He was a Giant fan, and when the Dodgers and Giants left prior to the 58 season, Les Kiter, for a few years, recreated the Giants broadcasts. And for those unaware, recreation is you're not at this. This was done years and years ago. They don't do them anymore, but you were not at the ballpark. You have a Western Union ticker in the studio, and you're given batter-by-batter accounts of what's happening in the game. So my dad was a giant fan. He listened to Les Kiter recreate the games. I was, this is 1959. I was seven. I couldn't quite grasp the difference of watching the Yankees on TV or listening to the Yankees on radio as opposed to Les Kiter calling it. My dad was explaining to me that he was not at the game out in California. He was simply calling the game uh, via recreation. And recreations were really big before announcers started to travel with teams. And then, uh, in fact, that was what was done. It was done in Indianapolis right before I got to Indianapolis. President Ronald Reagan, when he was a sportscaster, recreated Chicago Cub games on WHO in Des Moines. So they were very, very big. The one thing an announcer should not do and would not do during a recreation is say, we have a beautiful day for baseball. And the reason you didn't do that is the ticker might break. From time to time, the Western Union ticker might break. And when it did, you would say, oh, it's raining. We have a rain delay until they fix the ticker. So uh, a recreation was an exercise, an embellishment by the announcers because all the announcer would get would be a fly ball to center field and, and out. Now, he could make it a routine fly or – with Willie Mays playing center field for the Giants, it seemed as if every time Willie Mays made a great catch, according to Les Kiter's recreations. <laughs> and, and, you know, what I've discovered from these podcasts is that the Giants fans, and probably because of Willie Mays uh, and also because of the loyalty of, of, of um, place 
that Brooklyn, you know, has. Uh, but with the Giants, you know, they were more of a metropolitan team, and a lot of people followed Willie Mays. Exclude, you know, that was the reason why they 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 kept following them because, like you said, they kept rebroadcasting them. Whereas well, with the Dodgers, they just they said to hell with it. Well, there was there was I think much more, uh, many more people upset with Walter O'Malley leaving Brooklyn than with Horace Stoneham leaving Manhattan and leaving for San Francisco. In fact. The Giants were going to move to Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, the Giants were not doing as well financially as the Dodgers were, and the Giants were going to move to Minneapolis, but then Walter O'Malley decided to move to Los Angeles. He needed a partner. He needed somebody else on the West Coast, too, and he convinced Horace Stoneham to go to San Francisco. So, you know, so I, while I did not see the Dodgers play in Brooklyn uh, as a kid growing up in the 60s, I heard everything about them, and I think when Roger Kahn wrote the book The Boys of Summer in 1972 about the Dodgers in the early 50s, and it was a bestseller, that enlightened so many people. And then, as you mentioned, Sam, I became friendly and worked with Carl Erskine uh, for several years, and I saw him not too long ago, in fact. He has lived in Anderson, Indiana his entire life. He used to live, I think, in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. A lot of the Dodger players would live there. And the other Dodger, who I got to know well back in the 1980s, was Wee Reese. Wee Reese was working for Louisville Slugger, and when the Indianapolis Indians would go into Louisville, I spent a lot of time with Wee. Oh, that's really cool to hear. Um, so, in, uh, in Brooklyn, you said you played ball. So, did you have aspirations before radio came into play? Um, did you have aspirations to be a ball player? Well, I think any kid who starts playing realizes that that's, you know, at a young age you'd like to do that. And I, I can appreciate what my father said to me when I said nine, ten years old that I want to be a player, be a baseball player. He said, you're not going to be good enough. Now, you may say, well, why would someone say that where nowadays you have so many of these successful business people who will – say to a former player, teach my son how to hit, teach my son how to pitch, because these men were successful in the business world, so they figure if you work hard, well, why can't they become a ball player? Well, yes, you can improve yourself no matter who you are, but there is a certain genetic gift, an eye-hand coordination, a depth perception that more than 95% of the population does not have to be a, a baseball player. Now, those guys who do make it to professional ball and then to the major leagues deserve all the credit in the world, but there's a special gift. And my father told me, look, you don't have that. And uh, we, there was one kid in our neighborhood who really stood out when we were growing up, and his name was Luddy Benedetti. And he was born in 1951, Sheepshead Bay High School, and he was drafted. He went to LIU, and he was drafted by the Red Sox. And we were all wondering as we were kids growing up, 10 years old, 15 years old, is Luddy going to be a major league player? Because he's so great and so much better than all of us. Well, he only got as far as double A with the Red Sox. So it shows you how good you have to be and how talented you have to be to get into professional baseball and then to make it to the major leagues. It really is. Uh, when, when is the first time that you said, Radio is what I want to do. Broadcasting is what I want to do. Well, I was 14, and I remember thinking that maybe I wanted to be an attorney. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But then I said to myself when I was 14, what would I really like to do for a living? And it would be a sports broadcaster. And I got my career going at Brooklyn College on the campus radio station WBCR, and that is where I met Howie Rose, by the way. Hmm. Howie Rose spent one semester at Brooklyn College the fall of 1972, that semester, and we became friends then and have been ever since. So during my – and I convinced the campus radio station to broadcast the Bass games. We did that during the 71-72 season. And the following spring I was hired, or winter I should say, to broadcast St. John's basketball games on WRVR, an FM station, I think it was 106.7, it was a jazz station. 
and I really enjoyed it. It was my first taste of the business. And as I began my senior year, I wrote to minor league baseball teams, and Indianapolis had an opening, and I got the job. And for the most part, except for 1975 and 1980, I've been here ever since, and it's worked out very well. It, it certainly has, and, and you did a fantastic job uh, moonlighting real quick. Um, and um, before we get into your Indiana, just to, to in terms of contrasting, you know, your roots in Brooklyn to Indiana, moving there, um, let's talk about why your parents didn't move out of Brooklyn. You know, so many people at the time uh, that you were born moved to the suburbs uh, from the cities, going, you know, not just from Brooklyn, uh, but all across the uh, the country, and obviously Brooklyn's just a perfect example of that. So what kept your, your folks in Brooklyn until 1990? Well, I think, first off, it started with their families and their parents, and they were there as well. So my grandparents on both sides lived into their 80s, and so there were real ties there, and everybody stayed. And I used to joke around that when I left that, that I was the – first person in the family who believed in manifest destiny. And, uh, in fact, when I worked with Howie Rose, Howie Rose's daughter, Chelsea, attends, excuse me, attends Indiana University. So I was saying, I said, were you absent from school, Howie, the day they, that they talked about Horace Greeley and manifest destiny? I mean, I went to Indiana, your daughter went, and Howie said, well, you got paid to go to Indiana. I had to pay for my daughter to go to Indiana. So we had, a, we had a lot of fun with that. But the family's roots were in Brooklyn, aunts and uncles and cousins. And then my parents and some other family members moved to Florida, to South Florida, for the remaining years of their lives. So we have the very, very strong ties to Brooklyn. And as I, as I said, my sister still lives there about a mile from where we grew up, a little closer to Sheepshead Bay. She and her family still live there. So let's start with Brooklyn College in terms of uh, some of your favorites. I'm guessing that you agree with me that Brooklyn College is one of the most fantastic campuses uh, I've ever seen. And, well, I yeah. loved it, and it was especially important, too, because campus radio station. You know, I heard a lot of good things about it, and you hear about other broadcasters going out of town, other aspiring broadcasters, which is what Bob Costas did, which is what so many others did. Uh, but uh, I was fortunate to go there. I was, it was only 10 minutes from where I lived, so I would take the bus or drive there, and the campus radio station was was terrific, WBCR. Uh, one, my first ever speech teacher in the fall of 1970, Margaret Flynn, is someone with whom I'm still in touch with. I uh, had dinner with with her and former Dodger, former Brooklyn Dodger, and met Joe Pignatano uh, a couple of years ago down in Florida. So uh, my ties are, are still very strong. And speaking of Mets, let's, uh, let's transition there. You were coming of age just when the uh, New York was getting a uh, another team and bringing back their National League roots. And so what are some of your memories of those early Met teams? Well, the, the first thing that stands out was Casey Stengel's personality. And he was the, he had the funniest personality and maybe the funniest ever in baseball history. And it didn't begin on opening day. It didn't begin the first day of spring training, 1962. It actually started at the expansion draft because the Mets took a catcher named Hobie Landreth with their first overall pick. And Casey Stengel was asked, why did you take this catcher, Hobie Landreth, first? And Stengel replied, well, if you don't have a catcher, you're going to have a lot of pass balls. <laughs> so right then and there, we saw his sense of humor. Now, the man who hired him, George Weiss, was not known for his quips, was very serious. Uh, George Weiss also had hired Casey to manage the Yankees. And George Weiss did have one good line. You know, Marv Throneberry had all those legions of fans with the Mets and uh, Marvelous Marv and his ineptitude. And Throneberry received the Ben Epstein Good Guy Award from the New York Sports Writers. And so 
the following spring, he did not sign his contract. He was holding out for more money. And George Weiss said, I think that Marv Throneberry has the good guy award confused with the most valuable player award. <laughs> right. Yeah, because he wasn't exactly the most adept. They just, uh, you know, fans just seemed to flock. But, you know, fans seemed to flock to, to uh, support this losing squad. Right. Well, you can go on and on about the stories, but the Mets had a left-hander named Ken McKenzie, who in that first season, the Mets went 40 and 120. Those last two games in Chicago were rained out, so they were 40 and 120. And Ken McKenzie, lefty out of the bullpen, had a winning record. He was 5 and 4 which is a neat thing. He's the one guy on the team who had that. Now, Ken McKenzie was a very bright man. He was a Yale graduate. And back in those days, if you were not a superstar, you weren't making much money. It's quite different today, as you well know, Sam. But the, minim- the minimum salary now is over 500000 in the big leagues. Back then, the minimum was about 7000 and most guys weren't making any money. So one day... Around the hotel, the Mets were on the road, and Ken McKenzie was in a bad mood. And he walked up to Casey Stengel, and he said, Do you realize I'm the lowest-paid Yale graduate from the class of 1956? And Stengel said, Yes, but you have the highest-earned run average. <laughs> and and I think, you know, like you say, you can go on and on with the stories, but if I had to pick my favorite, uh, it was during a team meeting. Roger Craig, who pitched the first ever game for the Mets in St. Louis in, the, in April of 1962, they were having a team meeting and they were playing the Giants, and Roger Craig was pitching on this particular day. And they were going over the hitters and how to play them defensively, and they're playing the Giants, and Willie May's name comes up, and Casey Stengel says, Look, Willie Mays has great power to all fields. There's nothing more I can tell you about how specifically to defense him. Next guy, Willie McCovey. And Stengel said, Roger, with Willie McCovey, you have a choice. And Roger Craig said, I do. And Casey said, yes. Do you want your right fielder playing in the upper deck or the lower deck? And and bringing it all back around, uh, Roger Craig started his career with the Brooklyn Dodgers, winning a championship with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yes, and uh, Roger Craig, of course, then went on and managed in the big leagues with the Giants, had a lot of success there, too. And, uh, yeah, he pitched that first-ever game in St. Louis. I remember the Mets got off to an 0-9 start that year. Then they played better for a while. I think they won a doubleheader in Milwaukee on a Sunday afternoon, and I, I'm pretty sure that upped their record to 12-19, and 19, which was certainly getting better, but then they went on a, a bit of a losing streak, like about 17 in a row or there, uh, or there, something along those lines. So, uh, But Stengel had that great personality and that charisma, and he had a great relationship with the writers. And until the New York newspaper strike, I think was in 1963, there were so many writers, like seven daily newspapers there, and there were so many. And Casey used to call them my writers. And he had a great relationship with them going back to his days with the Yankees. You know, it's really interesting. I'm looking at the team page right now, and, and I'm not sure how much do you, other than calling the Mets this year, how much do you follow what's going on with the New York Mets? Well, I follow it closely. In fact, what is so impressive they have so many good young players, and this is the first time in a while they've been in that kind of situation. So, uh, And two of their pitchers are former Indianapolis Indians, and they both had real good years for the Mets. Vic Black, right-handed reliever, and Dana Evelyn, left-handed reliever. Uh, Vic Black pitched for Indianapolis last year, and Dana Evelyn pitched for the Indianapolis Indians in 2010, and they both did very, very well. So I think the Mets really have a, a bright future, very bright future. And I believe so, too. It's terrific to see them having so many good young players. You know, I was thinking today as we began this, you know, talking about the Dodgers, today is not a great day in Dodger history, by the way, no. Sam. October yeah. 8, 1956, 
the day Don Larson pitched the perfect game against the Dodgers not in to Game mention 5 last, of the World Series. Not to mention last night. <laughs> yeah, Game 5 of the World Series. So uh, in Brooklyn Dodger history, it's not right. a great day. I, As I said, exactly. I didn't get to to see the Dodgers, but uh, and I heard Red Barber announce with the Yankees, but when he broadcast the Dodger games from 1939 to 1953, he had an incredible following. And remember, this is before air conditioning became prominent, so in the hot summer days, people were outside in the evenings and in the afternoons. And so it was said, you know, people had their radios, it was said that you could walk up and down the streets of Brooklyn and never miss a pitch. Listening, right. people listening to Red Barber call the games, and it's just such a genius um, visual. Just to you know, to imagine, uh, you hear so many people mention that it, it's remarkable. Um, you know, and, and for me, the closest thing I've really ever seen that is during World Cup time in, in New York City. Because now it just seems as if, you know, because of Manhattan specifically, uh, because of how worldly New York is, um, that is the closest thing I, I've seen to having that feeling. Where you could go walking down Broadway uh, near Times Square or walking down 7th Avenue and, and pick up on exactly what's going on with, with whatever soccer game, uh, whatever football game, excuse me, even, uh, right. was going on. That's right. the closest that's, thing I've seen. And that's, I can appreciate that, although I'm not, there for that, obviously, but the thing about Red Barber, and that is an indication of what the Dodgers meant to the borough of Brooklyn. You know, people could say things about Brooklyn, this or that, but the one thing that Brooklynites could say is we have the Dodgers until, of course, 1958. So uh, it meant so much, and there, the cry in Brooklyn was always, wait till next year. And then when the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955, well, one of the New York papers had the headline, This Is Next Year. Yeah. And I talked to Carl Erskine about it and about uh, the World Series and winning it. And what an incredible night that was in, in the borough of Brooklyn. And now you were three years old. What's that? You were three years old. Right. So I don't remember that. I talked to Carl about it. The Dodgers had so many terrific teams. I mean, they won the pennant 19, right after they won in 41, but they won in 47, 49, 52, 53, beaten by the Yankees those times in the World Series all those years, and then they lose the playoff in 51. Interesting tidbit about that if you're curious. And then they lose. Uh, the Phillies beat them out in 1950. So all those teams, late 40s to mid-50s, were terrific teams, and they finally didn't win the World Series in 55. Yeah, and then went back to the World Series and lost again, but before, you know, all of a sudden next year wasn't here. And I, I have a, a question uh, that ties the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Mets together, uh, but be before I do that, I want to go off on a little tangent. In terms of uh, this year's New York Mets team, uh, something that was always like this this uh, thing that was brought up uh, amongst the fan base uh, because of something Sandy said had to do with the Pythagorean win-loss record, having to do with runs scored and runs allowed. And, um, you know, basically it was saying that we, I think we ended up having, we scored more runs than we allowed, but we had a losing record. So we should have been uh, an 82 and 80 team, according to the Pythagorean win-loss record. And, you know, I'm not sure how much anybody really believes in that. What matters is the standings, bottom line. But you look at the 1962 New York Mets, who finished 40 and 120, which is still the record. Um, you know, the, the Tigers had to win three games to not do that, to not break the record. But um, with the the Pythagorean win-loss record, they even though it doesn't make them any better, it, it gives them 10 more games, which is substantially more games than the 2014 team earns based off of that. So I just think it's interesting because I think that says a lot about the history of the New York Mets and what they've been and what they've been, the hump that they're trying to get over is that you're gaining 10 games here based off of just runs allowed, but they always seem to be just missing the mark, close with no cigar. They always have the – I think in 1962 they had the uh, – um, it's a crazy amount of times that they had either the, the tying run on base, winning run on base, and on deck, and they don't win. Well, it, it, you know, 
there's there's a thin line between winning and losing. A couple of years ago, you can check the Baltimore Orioles and the uh, Pythagorean theorem there in that the Orioles were winning one-run game after one-run game, extra inning game after extra inning game, did not have a good run differential. So, uh, you know, over the course of a season, those things sometimes don't even out. But I think what's so important, as we talked about earlier, is, is the good young players the Mets have. And I'm really hoping that Jacob deGrom wins the Rookie of the Year. I think he should yes. get it, and it would be neat. The Mets have always been terrific with young pitchers, and they've got them again now, and they've got good young position players as well. And that's what it's about right now. We just need to, to get this lineup together so we're not, what, you know, so we can pick up some of these pitchers who are performing really, really well in the bullpen finally coming together. Now, growing up uh, as a Mets fan and coming of age when the New York Mets were starting to, to come around, uh, I'm sure you heard a lot of Dodger talk, and I'm sure there, there was, you know, a conversation really bubbling still, even though every, you know, it was, it was a bittersweet, sad conversation, recollection. And so, what are some of the, the things you had heard, or what are some of the, the times you remember about the Dodger talk that also intertwined with with what this team was starting to create? What what did you see in the Mets uh, of the Dodgers, and and what you had been hearing about the Dodgers in these years? Uh, through Brooklyn. Well, I followed the Mets closely, as I told you. I followed the Yankees closely, too. And, uh, you know, you you would hear talk about how the National League was missed. I became a fan during a unique four-year period in New York baseball history, 1958 to 1961, when there was only one team. The Dodgers and Giants had left, and the Mets had not come into existence. So there was talk of a continental baseball league that Branch Rickey was going to form, and that precipitated expansion. So uh, I think there was a real good feeling among National League fans that, hey, we have a National League team back, and you know those four years were four long years for, for New York baseball fans. And then when the Dodgers and Giants came into New York that first year, those first few years when the Mets were still at the polo grounds, you know, it was really special, and it meant a lot to so many people. And again, I didn't see the Dodgers and Giants play in New York. Uh, couldn't quite, you know, I could understand how they felt, although I didn't see it, but it meant so much. And then for the Mets to have a player like Gil Hodges their first year, who meant so much to Dodger fans. And then Duke Snyder the second year, who Hall of Famer and a great Dodger. And the thing that hurt Duke the most was that Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle were playing center field the same time that he was, uh, although Duke hit 40 or more home runs five straight years. So I think that, you know, having those guys, having the former Dodgers like like Snyder, like Hodges, meant meant a great deal. And then you go later, you go to 1972 when the Mets acquire Willie Mays in a trade from the Giants and he spends the final couple of years of his career with the Mets, which was really nice. Yeah, I agree. That's one of my favorite parts of Mets history is the fact that Willie Mays was in a Mets uniform. And for a while, and for a while there, was doing a lot of roaming coaching for the, for the Mets. I guess, yeah. I'm not sure what his relationship was with the Giants at the time, but, but you know, um, I'd like to see them honor him soon, actually. I'd like, I'd like to see the Mets do something regarding Willie Mays and have a Willie Mays day. Of all the of all the great comments and look, Willie Mays hit six hundred and sixty home runs and had to adjust his swing to San Francisco. He had to adjust his swing because of the prevailing winds out there and he learned to hit the ball to right center field. So his his six sixty is terrific in itself, but even more so when you consider the conditions at Candlestick Park. But he once said, Don't get me wrong, I love to hit but making a great catch and throwing somebody out, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. He was a team guy all the way. Absolutely. Well, let's let's transition to Indiana. Um, so in, in 1974, you went out there. You had lived in Brooklyn your whole life. What's the biggest difference? Uh, although, you know, with context, though, the thing about Brooklyn is that it has so many different types of, of Americana in it, including – um, you know, you go to Bay Ridge and you, you'd swear that you were, uh, you know, a lot of these places, a lot of these neighborhoods, the houses, you'd swear you're in the middle of America. So what, what was the biggest difference? What are some of the similarities that you saw when 
going out into this uh, this new this new state? Well, I was 22 years old and never had been away from home, and and that was all okay, and I that adjustment was fine. But what surprised me is when I'd walk down the street and people would say hello to me. You know that isn't necessarily done in Brooklyn when you don't know somebody, and so. I was a little leery of that at first, and then I, uh, people said, hey, that's Hoosier hospitality, and that's what people do in Indiana, so it was a little different. The The main thing is the pace of life is slower, and, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, it's fast pace, you're moving, you're in a hurry, and that is not the case in Indianapolis. Now, Indianapolis in the 40-some-odd years I've been here, has grown by leaps and bounds to the point where we hosted the Super Bowl here a couple of years ago, where when I first got there, there was relatively nothing going on in the evenings in downtown Indianapolis, and, and that has dramatically changed with all the restaurants and with the Colts' arrival in 1984 and with the uh, Indiana Pacers' new arena. So it is it has really changed in Victory Field. Yeah where the Indianapolis Indians play is 18 years old, and the Indians were second in all of minor league baseball in attendance, drawing 660,000 people this past year. And there's such a change from when I first got there, the attendance was 130,000, less than 2,000 a game, and now it's 660,000. So minor league baseball is thriving in Indianapolis, beautiful downtown ballpark, and in many, many other places, too. Yeah, and I, I'd like to explore that. So what are some of the stories of those early years? What, what are some something that uh, comes to mind when talking about those early years in minor league Indianapolis? Well, this was a, a joke among minor league operators, but occasionally people would do this because attendance was not good. There were rough times that when somebody would call on the phone and say, what time does the game start tonight? The answer could be, well, what time can you make it? <laughs> so uh, times are different now with the with the new ballparks and, and the conditions being so much better. Tom Seaver came to our ballpark in 2000 and on a promotional tour, and I interviewed him, and he said, boy, is this different looking at our ballpark from when he was in the International League before he got to the Mets. So uh, the conditions are much, much better. In fact, there are some ballplayers, Eric Davis said this to me a couple of years ago. He said, you know, the conditions are too good in the minor leagues. We we had to be motivated to get out of these conditions, but uh, they've they've changed for the better. What are some of your, um, your favorite players you've seen come through there? Well, the guy... Uh, the guy I thought who became the best of anybody, well, there were two, uh, a former Indianapolis Indian, Randy Johnson, who pitched for the Indians in 1988 and for three weeks in 1989 before being traded. He will be in the, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, I'm almost certain, next, next year. And he went on and had the best career. The first game I ever called at home in Indianapolis involved a young man named George Brett, who was the third baseman for the Omaha Royals, who you could see all the talent he had. Now, he got to the big leagues a week or two after that, so I didn't see much of him that year. But those are the two guys who stand out. That first year, there was a young player named Keith Hernandez with the Tulsa Oilers, the St. Louis Cardinals AAA club. And I said, boy, I think this guy is going to be a terrific player, and he certainly did become one. So you can see those young, talented players, and that's one of the neat things that the fans in minor league baseball can do and can say is that they proudly point to the fact that I saw Randy Johnson pitch in Indianapolis, or Mm -hmm. I saw this guy play here and so forth. I remember uh, the first time I went to Richmond and remember mentioning to some people in Richmond that I remember a catcher named Jesse Gonder who caught for both the Yankees and the Mets. And I, I said, I know he played in Richmond. And, and the fellow, the official scorer, said, yes. And what they used to do is they'd point over the right field wall and say, over yonder, Gonder. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fantastic. That's and I, have, South. I, I, have a, um, I have a Brooklyn minor league story uh, in terms of seeing somebody, uh, a player, 
And basically, I, I've seen some good Brooklyn uh, baseball where they walked off because of a wild pitch during a playoff game to keep playoff hopes alive. They would have been eliminated when Wally Backman in 2010 was the uh, the coach. And also, um, Mike Yastrzemski, who is Carl Yastrzemski's grandfather, I think last year put, uh, not this re- recent season, but 2013, put uh, a dash, you know, a dagger in the um, Brooklyn playoff hopes with a double in the ninth inning and a tie a ball game, one one tie ball game, clearing the bases. So my, you know, minor league uh, baseball is something that's very very interesting to me. Right, I never have. I've been by the ballpark, uh, but I have not gotten to see the Brooklyn Cyclones play for the simple fact that the Indianapolis Indians are playing the same time. So I've never had a chance to to see the Brooklyn Cyclones play, but I know Carl Erskine has told me he's been there, and I know how successful the franchise is, and I, I think it's it's absolutely wonderful. And yeah, let's talk about Carl. What are some of the what are the years that he was in the booth with you, and what are some of your favorite stories regarding him in the booth? Well, the first year, what what happens is we do all the games on radio, and from 2000 to 2009 we would televise about 15 games a year, and I would move from radio to TV for those games. And I think from 2000 to 2006, I worked with Carl on those telecasts, and he's just a a joy to be around, a joy to work with. And uh, he would talk about the Dodger teams, and he also studies the game and has a terrific grasp of it. And it's absolutely wonderful that here he is, 87 years old. He's doing great. And so, and he and his wife Betty have been married since 1947. And uh, he and Betty and their son Jimmy were at the Indianapolis Indians ballpark about a month ago. So anyway, I think of of all the things you know that you can discuss, the Dodger Giant playoff game in 1951, the pivotal third game, and Bobby Thompson's home run, the shot heard round the world. Well. There are a few footnotes there. Okay, Chuck Dressen goes out to the mound. He brings in Ralph Brank at a pitch. Now, he also had Carl Erskine warming up in the bullpen. I think many of your listeners might be aware of that. And he called down to the bullpen and was told that Erskine just bounced his curveball. He said, okay, get me get me Branca. And Bobby Thompson hit the game-winning three-run homer. The shot heard round the world off Branca. Now, what is important, and a lot of people might not know, is that the Dodgers' number one catcher, who would be the MVP that year, Roy Campanella, was hurt. He injured his leg, and he didn't play in the second game or the third one. So Rube Walker was playing, was catching in place of Campanella. Now, Campanella was a terrific catcher, and Walker didn't have the same kind of defensive prowess. And with Carl Erskine's curveball, you know, throw it in the dirt, and Campanella would say to Carl, don't worry about it. You can bury it. I'll catch it. Don't worry about it, which frees mm. the pitcher's mind. Now, with Campanella not playing and men on second and third and one out in a two-run game, you can't afford a wild pitch. And so Rube Walker, not being the defensive catcher that Campanella was, well, that may have affected truck. Chuck Dressen's decision not to bring in Carl Erskine to the game, and that was crucial, obviously. So had Campanella not been hurt, it might have been a different story. That fear of a wild pitch, that fear of a wild pitch may have affected Chuck Dressen's call right there. It's unbelievable how that one moment can transcend time. You know, we're still talking about it to this day and dissecting every little element of that you know, October 3rd, 1951. Yes, yes. And uh, my, I told you my dad was a Giant fan. He got so excited. He was working in Manhattan at the time as a furniture salesman. And the only thing that I said, I'm glad that my mom wasn't a baseball fan because that was three months before I was born. And had she gotten so excited, who knows what would have happened. So, uh. Exactly, and, and my uncle is from Brooklyn and is also a was a Giants fan at the time. Uh, though there are a lot of people I know who have kept their allegiances with the Giants, um, he is not one of them. He is a big time Mets fan, Rangers fan, and Knicks fan. Um, let's let's finish with some broadcasting talk. So, 
Uh, who are some of your, your greatest influences when it comes to broadcasting baseball? Well, Ernie Harwell was a mentor to me, the longtime radio and TV voice of the Detroit Tigers. Uh, and by the way, Ernie Harwell first got to the big leagues with the Dodgers from the Atlanta Crackers. He was broadcasting minor league baseball for the Atlanta Crackers, and to this day he remains the only broadcaster ever traded for a player. That's a whole other story unto itself. But in 1948, he got to the big leagues with the Dodgers, then moved over to the Giants, to the Orioles, and finally in 1960, the Tigers. But Ernie was a great, great man. And I learned so much from him. He would critique my tapes. And uh, one other footnote, we were talking about the Dodgers and Giants. Ernie Russ Hodges' call is the call that people know. Uh, The Giants win the pennant when Bobby Thompson hit the home run. I did hear Red Barber's call when I went to Cooperstown. It obviously was a good deal more subdued as the Dodger announcer. But uh, although Red would say he was completely objective. But Ernie called that game on television. And he told me the only people that know that I called that game on television were Mrs. Harwell and myself because there was no audio tape of of my call. So he called it on TV. Marty Glickman was a tremendous influence and a great, great man. And he would also go over my tapes. And he helped me so much. Marv Albert was very nice to me as well. But uh, the two guys who I would say were mentors were Ernie Harwell pardon me, and Marty Glickman, and spent the most time with them. And they actually worked together on some football broadcasts in the early 1950s in New York. Ernie did color for Marty on some Giants football games. So those were two great people, two great broadcasters, and there have been many, many other people who, with whom I've become friendly and learned a lot, and, but those were the two guys that stand out the most. What's the greatest advice you've ever received? Have fun. You know, uh, you can enjoy what you're doing and love it. And Marty Glickman said this to me in the beginning, you can enjoy what you're doing and love it, but you must convey that. You can get so serious. You can get so serious about what you're doing that, you know, when Marty heard my tapes when I first started out, he said, you seem like you're having a good time. I said, yes, I love this more than anything else I could be doing. He said, well, make sure the listener feels that too. Have that smile in your broadcast. The other thing is that I feel the most strongly about is this, is that you must enjoy the journey in whatever you're doing. You know, there are so many people who are trying to get to a certain place in life whether it's trying to achieve this as a ball player or as a broadcaster, that they don't quite enjoy the moment and the journey. And one of the great things, I saw an interview that Tom Seaver did with Bob Costas on the MLB Network a few years ago, and he talked about when the Mets won it all in 1969, about how he enjoyed the journey, and he went out to the mound after with a celebration and just stood there and and just soaked it all in. Because all you often hear about is winning. we got to win. We have to win. We have to win. Well, yes, that may be a goal, but the journey is critical, enjoying every moment. And, and that's what, for all these years of broadcasting baseball, I still feel that way, that every single day at the ballpark is wonderful, and I've always enjoyed the journey, and that's critical. Yeah, and, and I really uh, love those words, and, and that's, I think, a good way to, to wrap this up. But, but before we do, I know that you have some stuff that you do outside of, of just broadcasting. So uh, before uh, I let you go, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that. Are you meant talking about the speeches that I give? Yes, the speeches. Well, I really enjoy doing that, uh, going to different states, a lot of associations, and they have state associations, and going to different states and customizing talks about athletes and coaches in the particular state in which I'm speaking. And and that's a lot of fun. Uh, I love doing that. And I think if anything, it's helped me as a broadcaster because I'm telling stories and that's a good part of broadcasting baseball. In fact, you know, to me, the storytelling means everything and working with somebody. And as we, we talked about earlier, I had a wonderful three days working with Howie Rose on the Mets broadcast, 
And the one thing, it, it, there were so many neat things and discussions we had and things we talked about, but we were talking about Lafayette High School in Brooklyn because he mentioned Pete Falcone. And then we mentioned that Sandy Koufax and Johnny Franco were at Lafayette High School. And the Aspermonte brothers, Fred Wilpon, the owner of the Mets. And then I said, and also let's remember Al Ferrara and how he said when Tom Seaver struck out 10 straight San Diego Padres, Al Ferrara was his first victim and his 10th victim. <laughs> and then I said yes, and then I said, and then Al Ferrara, who was a journeyman player, was traded to the Cincinnati Reds for another journeyman player named Angel Bravo. Ferrara's first game with the Reds in the outfield, he had a really tough time of it. It didn't go well. And a reporter went up to him after the game and said, Al, you, you really struggled in the outfield. And Ferrara said with that Brooklyn wit, hey, who did you guys think you were getting for Angel Bravo, Willie Mays? <laughs> so to me, that's the essence of baseball broadcasting, two guys working together, each with a footnote about the particular player. And, uh, and, so, and, and those are the kinds of stories I tell in my speeches, too, you know, the Al Ferrara thing. So I love doing that, too. And, and, and you have a fantastic voice. You're great to listen to. You have some great advice, and, and I can completely uh, understand why uh, people really uh, take to that. And I appreciate you coming on here and, and talking Brooklyn with me, talking some baseball and, and some Mets and uh, some broadcasting especially. It's all fascinating, and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Howard. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely, and that's our show, everybody. Catch us next time. Take care.